Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Atkins, and today I'm here with Chandler Benoy. Hey, hey. I didn't know if you are going to say anything or not, man. That was, Did you not hear was, me? No, well, there was a little bit of a pause there. Well, Maybe. I apologize. For those listening, if you probably, you probably could tell over the past couple of weeks and months, Todd and I are not in the studio together. We are recording remotely as well as with our guests. So it's a new new process for us. And we have a, uh, a, a lovely guest today. Uh, well, he wouldn't describe himself as lovely because I looked at his bio. He would describe himself that over the last 25 years of ministry, he's learned that he's kind of a nincompoop, um, which I've never been able to say in a, in a uh, introduction of anyone before. <laughs> um, but I'll make up with it uh, by saying this. Okay, so this is one of the guys that uh, I admire because if you're looking for practical, immediately applicable stuff, um, one of the places other than, of course, anything Lifeway Leadership does a second place that you might look would be uh, for the church. So Jared Wilson is on here today, and he's the editor of For the Church. He's also does stuff like he's a professor at the Spurgeon College, and he's author of a bunch of different things, um, including, I don't know, various and sundry books on his own, as well as those you might recognize that, that he would do with other people, like Explicit Gospel with Matt Chandler, his most recent book, was the gospel according to Satan. So <laughs> this is just really getting great. This is one of my favorite intros I've ever done. Um, but numerous, numerous books there uh, for you to take a look at. And we're we're here today to talk with him about leadership. And we are not going to talk about COVID. We're, we're just not going to. We're excluding that from the conversation right now. <laughs> okay? We all agree? Agreed. All right, we're over. Okay. So uh, he also is the director of uh, uh, the pastor training center at his church. And so in my opinion, uh, he's sitting in the best of both worlds because he's got a foot in the seminary and the foot in the actual church. And, um, and, and in both cases, training people for ministry. So uh, without further ado, Jared, is there anything that I didn't say that you would <laughs> like to say or anything I did say that you would like to correct? You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to have to add a uh, lovely man in quotes attributed to Todd Atkins on, in, in my bio now. Like I want to put that <laughs> at the at the very like the masthead of my website, a very, a very lovely man. Quote, <laughs> unquote, <laughs> Todd Atkins. I love it. Oh, that's so good. So Jared, no, it was perfect, the, brother. It was a little long and uh, I felt very flattered, but yeah, it was good. Some people might've fallen asleep a little bit halfway, but they woke <laughs> up. They woke up. It was yeah. fun. Jared, Jared, one of the books you you recently wrote was The Gospel Driven Church. Yes, sir. And I, I picked it up, man, this was probably about six months ago and it was on a flight somewhere and I picked it up and I started reading it at the beginning and I could not put it down. I felt like you encapsulated so many thoughts that I've been having about the church. And I know there's, there's other books that you've written re recently, but that one impacted me a ton. And can you just share a little bit behind why you wrote that and how you kind of came about? Cause I know there was a good bit of research that was tied up in that as well. Yeah. Well, you know, mentioning the practicality or the applicability of, 
of the For the Church resource, which is a website that Midwestern um, hosts, is really interesting because that book, The Gospel Driven Church, for me was a way of showing the practicality and the applicability of, uh, of gospel centrality. I think there's a misnomer that, um, when, when you, you know, if someone's interested in kind of the, the gospel centered paradigm or movement or whatever you want to call it, the tribe that it's somewhat opposed or kind of diametrically opposite, uh, you know, relevant ministry or, you know, systems and, and all of those sorts of things. And so it was my uh, attempt at showing kind of the imminent practicality of gospel centrality, especially for any leader, uh, pastor who is interested, they're bought in philosophically, okay, I, I really do want to turn from the attractional philosophy to gospel, you know, centrality, but how do I do that? That's the big question. Mm-hmm. What, you know, what's the how? I, I, I probably understand the what and the why. And so that book is, is, is really the closest thing that I've come to, to writing a leadership manual, like chapter by chapter. It's essentially how do you apply gospel centrality to uh, preaching, to uh, membership structures, to youth ministry and children's ministry, uh, worship, all, like all of those aspects. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, you know, the book tells a story as well, which you saw. So there's sort of a fictional story of a, a pastor trying to transition his church. And congregational change is such a complex thing. You know, you can't say everything about it to, to fit everybody's situation. But I just think principally, it, you know, it was my attempt at showing um, the how of gospel centrality, particularly for pastors who want to embrace that more or transition their church into more gospel centeredness. Yeah. Well, if you want to, if you want a little bit more to the bio, I think one thing that you did in that was almost like a Patrick Lencioni type. That, that's exactly that, Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was inspired by his leadership fable, um, kind of concept to do that. And that's, and, and that's what we pitched to, to Zondervan was basically, I want to do kind of a, a leadership parable kind of thing, tell a story to kind of illustrate, um, the thought processes, uh, you, you know, going through this kind of transition. Well, you delivered on the pitch, so congrats. Oh, awesome, man. Thank you. <laughs> um, I do want to ask, and I know, Todd, you said we weren't going to talk about COVID, so I'm not going to talk specifically about that. But I do think that book and the metrics that you're talking about and kind of how to view success in ministry, especially from a gospel-driven aspect, I mean, that's been thrown up in the air for a lot of churches. They're trying to figure out what metrics, what is success right now. And there was a, I mean, you had a lot of research in that. What would you say right now from if you're just speaking to a pastor calls you up and says, Hey, Jared, what in the world should I be looking at to to measure if we're being effective in this state of ministry? How would you take your research and kind of apply it to this, this state of where we are? Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, um, the, the aim doesn't change, right? The mission of the church is to make disciples. So what has changed is kind of our, our means of connection, and whether that's temporary or not, I think we all pray that it's, it's temporary. Um, you know, what's going on, that there is some sort of definite into this, the kind of avenues for, you know, content delivery, the avenues for interpersonal, um, you know, interaction have certainly changed and need to be innovated. But I don't think the, the ultimate aim is, is different that, you know, the church's mission is still the church's mission. We may need to innovate 
to kind of work around what's happening. Um, I also lead through tailored coach, a, um, a, a cohort, a coaching cohort for, uh, for pastors. And, and, and this has been an interesting time. I'm learning from them as guys who are in different parts of the country, um, kind of navigating their own County and, and, you know, the jurisdictions, you know, phases and the restrictions and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I'm learning from them that their, their core mission hasn't changed. The, the, the metrics that they use, um, haven't really changed in terms of what it is that's most important to quantify, um, you know, conversions, baptisms, and discipleship are people, you know, are people growing in Christ. Those are harder things to count the, the, the kind of, um, more nuanced questions of spiritual growth, which is why we don't as easily, you know, include them in our metrics. Um, but what has really changed for them is just kind of the, the, the content delivery systems, hmm. um, you know, the means of getting there. So I think I would just encourage, you know, pastors not to rethink the, the aim of your church or the mission of your church, un, un, unless the mission of your church is not to make disciples, then <laughs> definitely rethink it. Um, but, you know, to see all of the, the things that you're doing, not as a replacement for the mission, but as just kind of a, um, yeah, just the, the, the new way of kind of getting at the same old, um, the same old aim. Well, thanks for that, Todd. I will let you get us back on track now. <laughs> I've been waiting. You know, <laughs> this happens. Nearly every happen. episode, Chandler, you take us off on some rabbit trail. Oh, yeah. It's always me, not you, it's for sure. Me Absolutely. To bring this ship <laughs> back around and ride it. All right. <clears throat> so, Jared, who are you, who are you currently learning from? I mean, you mentioned those guys in that group, uh, yeah. and I appreciate that. That is a, um, you know, a, a, a kind of virtuous teaching cycle, uh, or virtuous learning cycle um, that you're talking about there. Um, but who else are you learning from? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think to, re to reiterate those guys, um, it, it's important for me as one who's not currently a pastor um, you know, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, I, I lead a, uh, a residency program for, uh, you know, at, at my church for guys who are training for ministry. And of course I teach the seminary, uh, a lot of guys who are either, you know, serving in ministry roles or aspiring to do that. But, but my fear has always been, that I'm going to, you know, kind of lose touch. Um, you know, I don't want to be the, the guy who, you know, has been teaching at the seminary for, you know, 30 years because he can't pastor or, <laughs> or he's just out of touch with, with, uh, you know, with local church ministry. And so the guys in, in the cohort, um, because they represent kind of a, a, a slice of, of different, you know, regions, um, in the past I've had guys, um, you know, globally as well. I've had guys from Australia, Serbia, Hong Kong, and it's really helpful to me to just, um, as a student of the church, uh, you know, as one who, who has a public ministry speaking to the church, um, you know, I, I think my connection to my local church is vitally important that I have accountability and that I serve there and, and, uh, minister there. But I also just want to have my ears open to, uh, to pastors and, and be a friend to them and, and learn from them different context, different, 
uh, even communities. It's, it's one of the key questions I ask when I go speak somewhere, um, especially if I'm preaching at a church as opposed to simply a conference or something like that, is tell me about your community. Tell me about your church. How old is it? What, what kind of cultural shifts has it gone through? What are the major challenges that you face? What are the idols of your community? What are the idols your church is tempted to? And it's just a way f- for me to, to continue being a student of different churches that maybe I don't have, you know, you know, personal history with. So I would say the guys in the cohort for sure. Beyond that, my local pastor, um, is a guy that I, I try to meet with, uh, at least every other week. And it's really funny. So he's, um, oh gosh, you know, almost 10 years younger than me. Um, when, when I moved here, uh, I, I, um, we joined a revitalization effort. So basically he came in about seven, eight years ago and the church was plateaued. It has seen an incredible growth, um, um, under his leadership. We've, we've added a plurality of, of elders in that time and the church has just really seen a lot of new life and, and it's been great. But I came here thinking, you know, I can really be a mentor to this guy. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to take this guy to my, you know, under my wing and then, uh, you know, be his Obi-Wan <laughs> kind of thing. And, um, I, I learned right away that he has so many strengths and insights, um, that I do not and did not have. <laughs> and I, I've learned so much from him. Um, just as an example, man, uh, like a lot, you know, any quote unquote wisdom that I may have has come through doing, the, you know, doing it the wrong way the first time, <laughs> like messing up and, um, and, and, and looking back thinking, Oh man, I, you know, I shouldn't do that again. Kind of thing. Uh, but he seems to like, he sees the, he's playing chess. He, he sees the, the moves, especially in terms of congregational leadership. Um, you know, if I move here, this is what's going to happen and et cetera, et cetera. And we can't, you know, disband this committee until this or that or the other thing. And, um, that's been really helpful to me. So I, I'm learning from him, um, you know, week by week, kind of new, new ways of, of, um, you know, leadership forecast of, of, you know, a vision, those sorts of things. Um, I would say that, and I'll just add very quickly at the end, I'm still learning regularly from Ray Ortland Jr. Who was a mentor to me, uh, when we both lived in Nashville, um, we, we planted churches around the same time. Uh, my church no longer exists and Ray's does. <laughs> and there's a good reason for that. And, um, back then, man, I just like snuggled up under his wing and still to this day, I, he, he's the most Jesusy person that I've ever met. Um, just smells like Jesus, this guy. And so, um, my ears are open to him as well. One of my favorite things about your answer is how much you just kept coming back to the local church as you're learning from those who are on the ground, pastors in the local church. And, and I do think it is a temptation, especially, and not I've never been on staff at a seminary, but I have been in seminary where it's easy to focus on the academic and be kind of in the theory versus the practical on the ground in the local yeah. church. So what advice would you give to those who may be in seminary or maybe just a word of caution? Because uh, I have seen where somebody can hop into seminary and then somewhat disconnect and say, Hey, once I'm done with seminary, I'm going to get plugged in a local church. What advice would you give to someone about planting themselves in a local church throughout seminary? Yeah. Well, so the, the church, right. Is God's, um, prescribed context for growth in his son. It's, it, it, 
It's the way the Christian life is designed to be conducted. So if all you want out of seminary is the degree or some sort of intellectual um, experience or adventure, then you, you can you can do without the church. But if you want to steward your seminary education for the kind of depth that will actually serve you as a pastor or even a you know professor, if that's why you're going, um, but you know as some kind of leader in the church, um, to have real depth, you need to be somehow applying your studies to your affections for Christ, your your relationship with Jesus, and if you're not embedded in the, in the life of a local church, even just as a, you know, plain vanilla, you know, vanilla member, which, you know, like me, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder at my church. I lead this residency, but I'm a plain vanilla member, which means I, I'm accountable to people. Um, you know, but there are people who know me, we're part of a community group. There are people who ask key questions about me and, and, um, and to me and to my wife and, and vice versa. If that's not happening, you're not positioning yourself for the kind of growth that will actually serve you in deeper ways as a leader, pastor, even a teacher um, of some kind. So I, the local church is just vitally important for uh, for seminary life, um, but also just, you know, that you have a means of support, that you have, um, yeah, you have a community where you, you feel at home, you feel a part of, you know, seminary is not designed, uh, that you can take a break from being a part of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a way to do it wrong, right? You never kind of press pause, um, because you have need of them and they have need of you as Paul said. Well, thanks for that. I know you have that unique perspective. So thanks for speaking into that. So what is, what is the main point of emphasis for you and your leadership team right now? Yeah. Um, the main point of emphasis for me, um, whether in my, in my local ministry or public ministry has always been, uh, the finished work of Christ, the, the gospel. Um, and I know that's kind of, uh, somewhat cliched right now. Um, when I kind of came to the realization that everything should kind of culminate in or emanate from the good news of Jesus, it, there was no movement there was, or, the, or there was no institutional movement. There was no tribe, so to speak. Uh, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, right? Like, uh, you know, all the things we look at today in terms of the gospel centered books and the gospel coalitions and together for the gospel, all of that, like it did not exist, or at least it did not exist in, in the way that it does now. For me, it came about in, in, in the midst of a personal train wreck of my life. And, um, you know, feeling like I, I need to even take myself out, um, you know, suicidal ideation, depression, uh, broken marriage. And I was in the guest bedroom of our house in, in Nashville and just crying out to God and, you know, begging him to give me a reason to keep going. And the message that the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart was not anything I'd never heard before. It was the same message that I'd heard from, you know, from childhood growing up in the church, but that God loves me and approves of me. And brothers, it was like the lights came on. There was something different happened to me in that little guest bedroom. And I didn't know the phrase gospel centered that that meant nothing to me. Um, I, I wasn't aware of anything, you know, related to it organizationally. For me, it was, man, it has to, end to begin with this thing that I thought was just for lost people. Right. I mean, I grew up thinking 
the gospel is just for the unsaved. And then once you get saved, you move on to these deeper things or bigger things or whatever it is. And now what God has done to me in a very, you know, severe mercy is show me that the gospel is the deep stuff that it's not just the power for conversion, but it's the power for Christian growth. Well, man, that just sent me on a trajectory that continues to this day. I, I, you know, it's, it's been a stubborn fixation for me and, and a focus of everything I do. It's how I lead my, um, my residents at, at Liberty Baptist. We're, we're doing what gospel centered ministry looks like. So when we're going through different subjects, whether it's, um, pastoral counseling, whether it's congregational leadership, whether it's leading your staff, leading yourself, um, preaching, of course, all of that, we're seeing how does the gospel impact this? How, how do you do this oriented around the finished work of Christ? That's unabashedly what my focus is. And I hope if you were to ask me this question in 10 years, I would give you the exact same answer. So when you look at your your life and you know you, you just mentioned a, a a really difficult time that you went through and first of all I just want to say that I appreciate your transparency with that um, because there's so many pastors that are listening to this right now that that need to hear that um, that you know they may have already been in a in a difficult spot and now this current season which I will not mention by name uh, <laughs> If you've got issues, man, it's bringing those to the surface. And so if yeah. you're already struggling with, you know, thoughts of self-harm uh, and, and th- it, it, I just cannot imagine um, walking through this alone. Um, and so I, I do want to ask you actually really quickly. Um, we just we have a conversation between Pete Scazzaro, emotionally healthy leader, and Ben Mandrell um, that you know, that we'll put in the show notes. Um, I think that's a really good conversation. It was all about a pastor and his emotional health. And I think that ties in well. Um, But as we move into the next question, it's really all about how do you stay sharp as a leader? What are, what are one or two things that you have to do every day? And I usually put the caveat of spiritual disciplines. Uh, (laughs) You can't say spiritual disciplines, but what are a couple of the things that you have to do every day to stay sharp as a leader? Um, that's the original question, but I would say, what do you find that you have to do every day to keep yourself in a, in a healthy emotional state as a leader? Yeah. A couple of things. Um, I mean, setting aside the spiritual disciplines as a, as a, uh, you know, default answer, of course. Um, I, I go, I, I want to be outside every day. I'm a very indoorsy person. Um, it's, it's not difficult for me at all to sit in my study or in my living room or, or what have you. Um, and while away, you know, my time online or with, you know, my nose in a book or something like that. And when I lived in Vermont, I, I, you know, developed this need, um, to just sit outside. And sometimes I listen to a podcast. Sometimes I'm reading, but a lot of times I'm just sitting there and I do that every day. I, I'll, I'll go out usually when I get home, um, you know, sit down, you know, on the back deck. Uh, my wife and I go for a walk. We live very near a lake. Um, and I'm sure the exercise is helpful as well, not just for physical health, but emotional health. But just getting outside for me, it's turning off distractions. It's turning off noise. 
um, you know, putting the phone down and just staring at the sky or people watching or something like that. That's really helpful to me. It, 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 it's very clarifying or at least kind of clears the air mentally for me, um, to be in that kind of, um, in a sense, solitude. I'm not always alone. Um, but a lot of times I am, and I just find that really helpful. I think a lot of leaders could be helped by, uh, you know, the added discipline of solitude and of, um, yeah, kind of, you know, being out with the bigness of, of, of the sky. But I'd also just add uh, reading and a lot of, you know, leaders, pastors um, read, but reading things that maybe outside of your, um, you know, your normal best practices kind of thing. Uh, I always have a fiction book going. Um, it, it just stretches different muscles and it, it, I think expands my sense of imagination, which has, uh, I think, translatable benefits for preaching. Uh, you learn kind of the cadence of language and even, um, you know, the way to articulate sentences and, and uh, to portray, you know, things, even to tell stories yourself, whether in illustrations. I think reading fiction is really helpful for um, people who speak, whether, you know, leaders, pastors and, and that kind of thing. Um, but also just, it enhances your imagination to confront different perspectives. It, it, it can make you a more empathetic leader, um, in, in dealing with your team or your staff or, or your church, your congregation, um, to be able to, um, you know, confront yourself with different cultures, different ideas, different ways of thinking. And a lot of that comes through, uh, fiction more than it might through the typical nonfiction that a lot of us read. I really appreciate that answer. Probably about four to five years ago, I started reading fiction a little bit more and I really didn't read it much beforehand. And it really was such a relief. So for those, and when you just say fiction, if somebody goes and looks, it's going to be so many things out there. So what are, what are like maybe three that you'd say, Hey, I recommend these. These have been, I've loved reason reading these. And I think they'd be, it would be helpful for you somebody to start with. Yeah. Well, C.S. Lewis for sure. Um, and if, if someone hasn't read, um, a lot of fiction yet, even, you know, his children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, will certainly give you a, um, uh, kind of a, a starter course, I guess for good language. Right. So you may not be learning about, you know, real life, uh, cultures and things that kind of enhance <laughs> your imagination, but just the imaginative process, you, you can also find a lot of good, um, you know, illustration material there as well, um, w which could be really good. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great kind of classic works that I think um, would be good to go to, to kind of go back to. It's a it's a good way to enhance one's sense of of history and learn different eras and, and what was going on, in, including works that um, deal with spirituality and, and religious ideas. So. If you're feeling a little more daring for those who maybe want to move on, kind of graduate from you know, the language of Lewis, uh, you might look at um, Dostoevsky, like Crime and Punishment. Um, you know, they, that seems really intellectual and some of the language can be a little, um, you know, high, high uh, uh, you know, concept. But a lot of his works, particularly Crime and Punishment, um, deal with, and also the, the brothers Karamazov, uh, they deal with theological issues and spiritual issues and, 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 uh, sin and redemption and those sorts of things. Those might be some good places or even just like good old cracking stories, man. Like, 
um, stuff from Jane Austen or Charles Dickens. Uh, the language isn't real difficult, but it puts you in a different culture and they're just really fun and kind of whimsical. So just as much as they might enhance your imagination and help you with, uh, you know, with language and those sorts of things, they're also just good relief. You know, it's, it's, it's good to kind of let off some steam and be kind of entertained, uh, by some stories. I love how those range from pretty tiny children's books to all the way from, it's going to take a few <laughs> months to get through those so Right, wide yeah. array there. Yeah. It, if you want to get really crazy, um, you know, as pastors, I recognize that a lot of us in the past may or may not have had a book allowance. And <laughs> some of us, especially when we were maybe a little bit younger and insecure, bought massive sets in the back of a CBD that were on sale. And, and you know, you wanted to have many leather bound books behind you. Um, <laughs> all of that thing. Um, now, I will say... In, in alignment with what you're talking about, uh, I am probably not, I'm known for reading more business books and, but I, I do talk about classic books quite a bit on the podcast and we're like classical education people and all that. Um, so you could go to your local thrift store or eBay and probably pick up a set of the great books of the Western world for not much at all. And you will find a lot, you'll get a lot more out of it than any set you've ever bought before, because it is all the classic works from, you know, Greece to a uh, hundred years ago. Cause it was, I think it was pulled together in like the fifties. Mm. Um, but it's just an amazing, amazing set. There's over 500 books in that set and it'll be in like wow. 50 or 60 volumes. Um, but they're like, you know, all put together. And it's a really, really cool, a really, really cool thing to add to your, uh, to your library for sure. Nice. Sorry. A little life, a little life hack there. I like there it. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Jared, what, what does leadership in your home look like? I know that you, before we were talking, it sounds like there's, you only have one kid left at the house. What does that look like now, uh, in your home? Yeah. You know, so I, I, um, I'll be married 24 years in at the end of this month, uh, June 29th. We are our 24th wedding anniversary. Um, two daughters, one away in college, one still at home. And that's, that's different for me, man. I grew up with one brother. Um, and I, I didn't grow up in a very, um, I mean, it was not a, a cold home at all, but we just weren't big talkers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so growing or not growing up, but living in a home for the last you know 19 years or so with three ladies <laughs> has been really different. And, um, I think the leadership, like, you know, you sent some of these questions ahead of time. And I, I thought about this one for a lot, uh, uh, for a while. The, the key I think is, is listening well and, uh, affirming. And that's not just, um, you know, in my home, that's, that's something that I think is, is necessary for good pastoral work, of course, and good leadership in general. Um, but grow, you know, living in a, in a house with three women where the instincts, the impulses, sometimes the emotions is, is so different from, you know, what's inside of me. 
<laughs> means um, I, I need to learn that language and be a good student, right? Peter says to live with your wife in an understanding way. Um, we're also told elsewhere, you know, not to exasperate our children. Um, I, I've tried to take that as seriously as possible, which means I, I want to be a good student of the people around me. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to, you know, listen well. Um, since my kids were itty bitty, um, they did, um, um, you know, public school growing up until we moved here, they go to private school. Um, but I, I have always driven, if I'm in town, I'm driving them to school since they were, you know, kindergarten age. And so for the last, you know, however long, 14, 15 years, uh, I've been the one driving them to school if I'm available. And those times are really precious. It may not be a long time. But, you know, picking them up and asking how their day went, you know, what happened, um, how they felt about it, or just in, in, in the home, um, you know, having my ears open, not being closed off in my man cave, you know, not, uh, you know, those times are important as well. And, and, and I like good solitude, but I need to be a, a present husband and a present dad. Um, and for me, the key that I've discovered is being more a listener than a talker. Um, yeah, just listening. Well, that's really good. I have, uh, three women in my house. There's also (laughs) three of us dudes. Okay. Uh, So you've got some support there. That's good. No, no, (laughs) it's not even close, man. Okay. It's not even close. Yeah. Uh, You're, you're outnumbered anyway. Oh Yeah. Uh, all, all females, including the two year old are just forces of nature. (laughs) That's great. So, so we're outnumbered. My oldest is like wicked smart. Uh, and it's really fun to watch a seven year old girl. Um, I mean like super smart, but man, she thinks like two or three steps ahead of him. (laughs) <laughs> and completely manipulated me. He doesn't even realize it. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, That's awesome. it's fun to watch. And then to realize that the thing, same thing is probably being done to me and I don't realize it either. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on and look at our last question, which is what would you tell your 20 year old self about what advice would you give uh, going back and, and, and talking to him about, you know, life and leadership? Oh man. Yeah. The, the, the list would be, could fill a podcast on its own. <laughs> uh, there's because I, I, I was the guy and to some extent still am. Uh, I think I've settled down a little bit more, but I was the guy who found the landmines by stepping on them. Um, and, and you know, there's so much that I would tell my 20 year old self. Um, some things that would have prevented, I think some of those heartaches, and some of the difficulty that, that, um, you know, I, you know, I was reaping what I was sowing. Uh, so there's, you know, sins, uh, um, you know, pornography, things that I would have really shaken, you know, me by the collar about to say, um, you know, you know, this is wrong. Um, but what you can't see is the destruction that you're sowing right now. And from the future, I want to tell you, you, you have to stop or your worst nightmare um, is, is going to come very close to being true. That's, I think, a personal you know, thing that I would say to myself. Then um, it, it just the, the sinful behaviors that I was involved in, um, 
just had far-reaching ramifications for things, disqualifying um, in the interim from ministry that um, that in the time I didn't understand. But looking back, man, you know, the Lord was closing doors because I, I should not, um, you know, uh, have been responsible for uh, for people's spiritual growth. And, and I, you know, the time I didn't understand that. So I think looking back, that's something I would have talked to myself about. Um, I certainly, you know, would have wanted to head off at the past, some of the pragmatism. Um, you know, I came of ministry age, was trained for ministry under a particular paradigm that now I think I'm, I'm able to see um, some of the benefits from that, you know, you can learn from, from just about anybody. And there's some valuable things, some valuable, you know, gifts that were refined, um, but also some skills I picked up. Um, but I would have head off at the pass some of the just kind of uncritical adoption of pragmatism and consumerism that I was engaged in for a long time. I, 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 I sometimes think of like the last 10 years of ministry as being kind of a repentance tour for the first 15 years of ministry. Um, and, and so certainly I think I would have wanted to go back and kind of put a knife in some of that stuff. Um, if I would have listened, I mean, we're just, you know, when, when we ask this question, we assume that our 20 year old self would even be listening. Um, but <laughs> you, you, true. you know, you know, everything when you're 20, man. So <laughs> yeah, your 20 year old self would be like, look, Jared, I can see that you're a lovely man. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are some of the things that I would say. Um, but I, I think I would also go back and say not something that I, you know, didn't know, but would just need to have reinforced, which is that y- your identity, y- your, you know, estimation of yourself, your, y- your summation of, of, of your, your ministry cannot be based in your productivity or the outcome, the results, or in what people think about you. That's a big one for me is what people think about me. Um, less so today than it was back then. But for that reason, I think I would have, you know, I would say if I could get in that time machine, that would be a, a key thing I would say to myself, which is, you know, ministry and your um, reputation or what, what people think of you cannot be what defines you or you are setting yourself up for uh, heartbreak, uh, despair, even uh, you, you need to see who you are in Christ and, and know that if this all falls apart, you know, you, you never have a book published. You never have a speaking engagement. You never have a, a church to pastor. Uh, if you don't have any of those things, uh, but you have Jesus, you actually have everything. That's, I think, what I would want to emphasize to myself. Well, we can all use that advice even today. <laughs> so really do appreciate you sharing that. And Jared, thanks thanks for hopping on the podcast with us today and walking through the five leadership questions. It's been just very refreshing to hear your transparency and for you just sharing about, you know, what you've walked through on your own. And thank you for listening today. We hope it's been helpful. And if it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so that other leaders like yourself can find the podcast. We'll see you. Thank you.